Hey everyone, welcome to the podcast. I'm Pastor Brian. I'm joined in the studio today by Pastor Ross Anderson. Ross, today we're in week two of our conversations on the biblical doctrine of the Trinity. Now, last time we talked about the idea that the Trinity is a paradox, and we set up this this orthodox um, definition of the Trinity, that God exists as one being and three persons. And today we're going to take the easier part of that equation. We're going to talk about the fact that God is one being. Next week, we'll talk about the three persons part. So Russ, this is the one that's not as big of a deal for most Christians, right? Most Christians don't have a big problem with the idea that there's only one God. Yeah, it's really clear in the Bible, and it's not confusing, you know, to say, hey, one God, that's pretty easy to figure it, figure that out. And in fact, if you look back historically, uh, most of the heresies that have uh, denied the doctrine of the Trinity have done so out of a desire to preserve the idea of one God. Yeah, so we're going to be talking in the next couple of weeks, today and next week, we're going to be talking about a couple of heresies in the Church, so pay attention because we don't want to be heretics, right? Now, now today we're going to talk about the heresy of tritheism, and really most listeners would not have a problem with this or would, would not be going to a church where they teach tritheism because Christian churches don't really have this problem. Next week, however, we're going to talk about the, the three-person side, and there are Christians who, who actually misunderstand the, three, the personhood of God and therefore unknowingly might buy into heresies. And so again, we'll, we'll talk about that part of it in, in next week's episode, but for today, we're, it's still important for us to understand the, the one part, the oneness of God, because the Trinity, the idea of the Trinity starts with the, the, the concept that's deeply rooted in Jewish scriptures, that there is only one God. And if we go all the way back to uh, Old Testament Judaism, we see this play out in what's called the Shema. Ross, explain that to us, those of us who are Gentile listeners. Yeah, the, the Shema is a representation. Um, it, it's a core idea that's found in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 6, and it really represents the whole Old Testament concept of God and everything the Old Testament presents, or I should say everything God has revealed about himself in the early part or part of Scripture. The Shema is where God tells Israel to, uh, to recite this. He says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. And the different, there's different ways that that could be translated. It could be translated as there is one Lord. Mm -hmm. And so it gives us this idea of monotheism that permeates the whole Jewish culture, the whole Jewish experience of God. So if you grew up as a Jew in, in Old Testament times, you would, and even in New Testament times, right, you would, you would really sort of quote this Shema, this Deuteronomy 6.4, and there's more to it, but this is the first part of it. You would you would recite this almost like the Pledge of Allegiance for American kids growing up, right? I mm -hmm. I went to school, public school, so we would do. I think about it now, and it's kind of weird, Ross. But we would we would pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America. Okay, so so Americans can understand the Pledge of Allegiance. If you were a Jewish kid growing up, every day you would you would sort of pledge your allegiance to the one. Right. God, the God who is one. Okay, so this first idea uh, that, that gets a, at the nature of God is, is drilled into a Jewish kid's head. Mm -hmm. And so then fast forward to the New Testament, and New Testament believers, 
you know, certainly in the gospel, right? Jesus' disciples, they all grew up Jewish. So they would have all grown up reciting the Shema. So they, mm-hmm. when they meet Jesus and they start following Jesus, they would have this understanding of God that it very much elevates the oneness of God. Right, and in both contexts, both the Old Testament and New Testament context, the Jewish people are surrounded by polytheism wherever they look. Mm-hmm. And so all the nations around Israel, this is God's way of, he wants to stake his turf here to make sure that they don't think he's a God like the gods of the Canaanites and the uh, the Assyrians and all the rest of the ancient world. He's not like those gods, this pantheon of of gods that men have invented. And the same thing in the New Testament world, in the Roman world, uh, there was there were a million different uh, divine deities from all the different cultures that intermingled together in the Roman Empire. And so again, Judaism is really unique at that time and place, and they're deeply committed to this conviction of monotheism. That would have been uh, the air that the first disciples breathed, in a sense. Right. All right, let's look at some scripture. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. This is Paul writing. Paul said this, there may be so-called gods both in heaven and on earth, and some people actually worship many gods and many lords, but for us, Paul writes, verse 6, there is one God, the Father, by whom all things were created and for whom we live, and there is one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things were created. So again, we'll get into that Mm -hmm. part of it later, but the point really for today's lesson is Paul is very clearly affirming the oneness of God. There's one God. Paul was a Pharisee, so Paul grew up Jewish as well. And then when he met Jesus, just like the disciples had to, the first Christians, as they wrestled with the identity of Jesus, they never wavered from the clear understanding that there is only one God. So again, we'll get into the identity of Jesus more in the in the next lesson, mm-hmm. but it's just for today, it's important for us to understand the early Christians as with the Old Testament believers, followers of God, very clearly understood this idea, the starting point for the Trinity, which is that there is only one God. There's not, there aren't two gods or three gods, there's only one God. A couple more scriptures, 1 Timothy 2, 5, again, Paul, he says, for there is one God and one mediator who can reconcile God and humanity, the man Jesus Christ. Romans 3, verse 30, there is only one God, and he makes people right with himself only by faith, whether they are Jews or Gentiles. So, so Paul is saying the God of the Jews is, is not just for the Jews. The God of the Jews is over Jews and Gentiles, mm-hmm. those who are Jewish and those who are not Jewish, those who understand the Old Testament promises spoken to Abraham and those who don't, those mm-hmm. who maybe would, would think that they're sort of outside the covenant. No, Paul says... No, there's only one God over all of them. Now, we'll talk about the implications of that yeah. here in just a minute. Yeah. But this is it's so clear that the New Testament believers, the Old Testament believers, clearly affirm there's just one God. Yeah, and especially, again, in the context where every nation had their own, their own idea of God. and they, So uh, gods, the gods were seen as being associated with a particular culture or a particular ethnic group. What Paul is saying here... And so that would have been the issue he's addressing, that you know, Gentiles have their God, Jews have their God. He's saying, no, this is the, the God, the only God, the God with a capital G, the God who made everything. Right. And so that's, uh, that's who really exists. Now, so, but here's what happened. So at some point in Christian history, each part of the classic definition of the Trinity 
ends up being challenged, even this one God part, right? And I, I mean, look, let's be gracious to, our, to all the heretics in Christian history. You know, in, in part, they're trying to make sense of the paradox of right. God, right? So right. we're not trying to make fun of people this week or next week when we talk about modalism. It's because a lot of listeners are going to find out, uh-oh, I think maybe... maybe... I'm, a, I'm an actual modalist. <laughs> yeah, right. I didn't so know it, but yeah. We'll get to that next week. So, uh, you know, let's be, let's be very gracious toward um, heretics, as gracious as we can be. But it's still, I think it's important to understand that the when we cross a certain boundary, then we fall outside of Orthodox Christianity. So we want to make sure we don't do that. So one challenge in history claims that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are separate, distinct beings. So, so remember, our definition of the Trinity is one being, three persons. So those words are important, beings and persons. Right. In terms of beings, there's only one God in being or essence. In terms of personage, there's three. We'll get to that next week. But So the, the heresy that we're going to deal with today is the heresy of tritheism, and this obviously misses the oneness of God. A tritheist teaches that there are three distinct gods who work closely together. So the a tritheist says that their distinction is in being. Mm -hmm. There are three gods in being, which is not biblically true. Right. And so I, let me, I could, uh, we could back up a little bit and look at a bigger picture and say, look, there's a lot of um, cultures in the world that are not just tritheist, but are polytheist. That would also be uh, in defiance of the idea of the Trinity. So you have Hindu culture where there's a million different gods, or you have or you have tribal cultures in in different uh, in the developing world where again there's maybe gods that go with this group and there's other gods that go with that group, but we're really focusing on um, heresies that ar arise within the broader stream or the broader framework of the Christian tradition, and so that's why it, it's it's tritheism versus polytheism because in the Christian tradition these three. God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have all been identified, and so that, that's why some groups say, well, each one of those um, is a distinct being, or you could say is a distinct God. Mm -hmm. Now, again, in Christian history, I think we need to make this clear, it, this is very rare. They're yeah. very, even though, so next week, what we're going to look at next week is more common, the heresy for next week, the heresy around his personhood, but the heresy around God's being the heresy of tritheism or even polytheism is, is really rare in Christian history. Right. Most Christian churches, most Christian theologians, the vast majority get this right. Yeah, no question. They don't debate over this, but there is one group, There's right? One group. And we need yeah. to talk about this because, again, this we talked a little bit about this last week, and we want to be very charitable toward toward this group, but there is one group that definitely falls into the tritheism, really even the polytheism camp. Right, and so... Yeah, that, that, those are a couple of, of related issues there. But yeah, looking back historically, there's there's never been there's been an individual voice here or there in the history of Christianity that's uh, that's advocated for this view. There's never been any kind of group, any kind of a movement that has congealed around this until, you know, in America in the 19th century, mm -hmm. um, and Joseph Smith, in the context of Mormonism, taught that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are not one God, but one Godhead. Mm -hmm. And so they're three independent beings who work together, who are united in purpose, in will, and united in, in other ways that are less than being actually united in their being or in their essence. 
Now, again, some 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 listeners might say, "Is it that is that that big of a deal?" Who care? It's just the it's just a little. They okay, so they it's is this just a matter of semantics, right? That they miss they're missing something here. But I, it's obviously it's more than the, a matter of semantics, because like we said last time, what you believe about God, in particular, what you believe about Jesus, is the most important thing about you. So if you if you somehow have this belief that Jesus is a separate God than God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, first of all, you're believing something that is not biblical, because again, let's go back to the Shema, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There's only one God. There are not three gods, and and in my mind, Ross, the bit maybe even the bigger problem is that you extend this out in Mormon theology, mm-hmm. and really, I I don't know. I don't want to get into all the weeds here on Mormonism, but I think part of the problem is, is they bring Jesus down to our level, or actually more, maybe more fittingly, they bring humans up to Jesus's level, because part of their teaching, this is where it gets in, goes beyond tritheism to polytheism, part of the Mormon teaching is that someday maybe you can be a god too. Right. Right, so the, the idea of tritheism for Mormonism fits into this much larger pattern or worldview of multiple uh, potential multiple deities. Yeah, right. it, it is, as one LDS Mormon writer said, it col- uh, collapses the distance between God and humanity. Uh, so, but but uh, the th- uh, one of the things about why does it matter? It, it really matters because this is how God has revealed Himself as mm-hmm. one God. Right. But another thing I, I've thought about this: if if it's just a Godhead. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are distinct beings who are one in purpose and so forth. What is there to guarantee that they'll always be one in purpose? Mm. What if one of them decides that, you know, it ought to be a different way? Mm. You know, there's no guarantee that they'll always be one in purpose because they're not one in essence. And so that becomes kind of a problem for that particular approach to God. Yeah, so let's take a look at some scripture, uh, and there's so much scripture. And what we always want to challenge people to do is, is read God's word with a proper understanding of God's nature. And the more you read it, the more you will see that these ideas, the idea, the biblical or the orthodox view of the Trinity, really is, the, you know, in my mind, the only option that there is. So, f- for example, in the Bible, God says in Isaiah forty-six nine, God says. Remember the things I have done in the past, for I alone am God. I am God, and there is none like me. There's only one God. He's making a very clear claim in Isaiah 46, verse 9, and then Isaiah 44, verse 8, Do not tremble, do not be afraid. Did I not proclaim my purposes for you long ago? You are my witnesses. Is there any other God? No, there is no other rock, not one. And Ross, I think this might be the one in another translation mm-hmm. that says, I know, I know not one. Not not one. Yeah, yeah. So if God says, I don't know any other gods, then I think that's, you yeah. would take and, that to the bank. And the question for the tritheist then is, number one, who is speaking here? Mm. Which divine being is speaking? Is it the Father? If it's the Father, he's saying, I don't know any other gods. Well, I don't know that Jesus is a god then, or I don't mm. know the Holy Spirit is divine. Right. And so if it's Jesus speaking, then again, the same thing. So the logic of it falls apart in light of these clear scriptural statements. Mm -hmm. 
Ross, let's just let's take a take a second here to speak to the Mormon listener. We have many friends who are Mormon or who are investigating Christian claims versus Mormon claims, and I know it's confusing for people who grew up Mormon. And we we love these people. We're not we're not you know with these podcasts we're not trying to single them out, and we're not doing anything out of spite or out of of, of this idea of competition. We love our Mormon neighbors. We love our Mormon friends. I've mentored many people who have come from a Mormon background, and I know you have too. What would you say, Ross, to the Mormon who's listening, who maybe they want to be defensive right here, or they want to push back, or um, or they're offended even by what we're saying about Mormon claims versus uh, Orthodox Christian claims? Mm-hmm. Well, I, I think part of it is, um, you know, the it's just, you have to take the Bible seriously. We would just encourage our LDS friends to take the Bible seriously mm-hmm. and, and to uphold everything that... If you want to uphold everything the Bible says, then then this is what you end up with. You know, I know that for LDS people, the Bible is not um, always seen as being final and authoritative. Mm-hmm. It's seen as, seen as being corrupt. And, um, and, and this idea of God comes out of the experiences that Joseph Smith reported to have had when he, he claims he saw the Father and the Son side by side and mm. as two distinct uh, pers- uh, beings. And so, but we would just say, hey, if you read the Bible just and let it speak for itself, you know, then, then decide, you know, if this is what the Bible's saying or not. Yeah, and I'm encouraged, Ross, by so many people that I've met in our churches at our campuses who who come from an LDS background, but they do value God's Word. They do value the Bible. and But it's a struggle, right? Because part of, part of the um, teachings in Mormonism is that the Bible is, is only true as far as it's translated correctly. So that, there's a big out there. There's a bi- that's a big loophole, yeah, right? Yeah. And so it, it, if I was a Mormon, that'd be really confusing. I would say, well, I don't know if Isaiah 46 and Isaiah 44, I don't know if those are translated correctly. Right. I don't know if Deuteronomy 6 is translated correctly. Um, and so again, I would, I would just echo that, that if, if you're listening to this coming from Mormonism, man, I sure hope you would read God's Word and prayerfully consider what God's Word is, is speaking. Yeah, the other thing I would say is, um, if for the LDS person, you know, you've heard the Trinity described um, in a lot of terms that could be called caricatures, and it, it's maybe not been described in a way that um, gives it full credit. And so it's really easy to say, wow, that's really stupid, or that's really um, ridiculous, you know. But it, it, so what we're trying to do when we talk to our LDS friends is we want to take Mormonism at face value and understand it on its own terms, so that we're not just uh, reacting to a caricature or a lampoon of Mormonism. And we'd ex- encourage you to do the same thing, um, to take it at and really try to understand what Christians are trying to say mm-hmm. and interact with that, not just interacting with, um, with your own or somebody's um, sort of shallow and inaccurate picture of what they think the Trinity is. No, that's good. That's a that's actually good just in general yeah, in relationships everybody. in general. Yeah. Try to listen, try to hear the other person, and really understand what the other person is saying. So whether you're evaluating a faith, a religion, or whether you're just trying to have a have a have it out with your spouse, yeah, <laughs> learn yeah. learn how to really listen to what the other person is saying. 
And I think that's good. And I, I, I have to remember, that, you know, maybe to Christians, if you do have Mormon friends or, or anyone maybe who's just seeking out uh, an understanding, a biblical understanding of the Christian God, the God of the Bible, to really try to listen to where they're coming from and then let God's word do its work. You know, let, that's what we try to do on this podcast at PursueGod.org as well. We try to just, li- it's all built around God's word, what God's word says, and let God's word do its work. All right, so one more thing, Ross, for today. Um, when we're talking about the oneness of God, I, the question we want to end with is, so what does it really matter? Mm-hmm. You know, how does this theological truth impact our everyday life? And the answer is that the existence of one God can give us peace and it can give us certainty in a world that can be confusing, that can be transitory, like there's nothing solid. So the the idea of the oneness of God can really fight the anxiety, the existential dread, the anxiety that people can have because this everything seems to be changing so quickly. And is there anything certain in the world? The existence of only one God helps us make sense of real life matters for humanity, for morality, and even the real life matter of eternity and what's going to happen at the end. Yeah, let, let me say, uh, before we get into the details of this, I think that in Christian history, the idea of this oneness of God, like we began talking about how that's so prevalent, that's really easy to get and understand for people within the Christian tradition, um, that we've that we've kind of taken it for granted so much so that we haven't really thought through some of the implications of it, things that maybe we just never thought about, but that really are rooted in the in the idea of the one God. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we'll explore some of those um, in the next couple of minutes. I think it matters, like you said, humanity, morality, eternity are three big issues. Yeah, and there's more, but let's just mm-hmm. deal with those for now at least. And I think you're right, Ross. I didn't really think about... I've always thought about the the nature of God as just a sort of a theological thing, sort of detached from mm-hmm. from anything important in my everyday life. But but I'm, I appreciate this part of today's topic that it really does impact the way we live. It really does impact our world, our everyday world. So let's break these down. So first of all, let's talk about humanity. If there's only one God then there's only one creator of the entire human race. Think about that. If there's only one God, then one creator created every nation, every people group. Now, remember, in the ancient world, each nation had its own deities. Nations claimed supremacy over other nations based on supposed supremacy of their gods. Now, this wasn't just something in the ancient world, even today. Even today. Yeah, it still exists. But, But if there's only one God who made all people then, Ross, what does that mean for humanity? Yeah, well, I'd say, first of all, it, it isn't just ancient world, like you said, It's and it isn't just, you know, it's today's modern gods of, say, philosophical systems, communism, capitalism, those have a way of saying, well, my system is superior, so so we're superior mm. to you, you know, whether it's, uh, whether it's a, a, a deity system like Islam or whatever it is. Um, or whether it's a philosophical system, we still we still find ways to uh, separate. But the the point is here to me is that if if there's only one God who's the creator of everything, then He made human beings. Then one human beings all have the same source. Human beings all have the same um, you know DNA in a sense, not just in a biological sense. 
but in the sense of our origin and our therefore our identity and our meaning in life. And so, um, really, th- this whole like, tribalism is still alive and well in the world today. Um, even within a nation like America, a democratic nation, uh, there's still such subgroups of people that are so much at odds with each other. It's not so. We're not just talking about Africa, where you know the uh, the one group against another group and revolutions and warfare and so forth. It's even in our own culture that really we're really all one one race. There's mm-hmm. one human race. God, one God made us all, and so we really. Uh, it's really not appropriate. It's less than what God has in mind, I think, for us to separate into our little tribal groups and all claim superiority over each other and and stay in war with each other. It's a failure to recognize our common source in the one creator. And Paul gets at this in Acts chapter 17 when he's standing there before the council in Athens and it's a it's a you know a Greek religious system and you've got seekers there and philosophers there and he addresses the people he says men of Athens I notice that you're very religious in every way for as I was walking along I saw your many shrines and one of your altars had this inscription on it to an unknown god and I love what Paul says there he says this god whom you worship without knowing mm-hmm. is the one I'm telling you about. Okay, so this is this is his uh, technique to evangelize the people of Athens. He says, this is the God who made the world and everything in it. Mm-hmm. And since he is Lord of heaven and earth, he doesn't live in man-made temples, and human hands can't serve his needs, for he has no needs. He himself gives life and breath to everything, and he satisfies every need. From one man, he created all the nations throughout the whole earth, and he decided beforehand when they should rise and fall, and he determined their boundaries. His purpose was for the nations to seek after God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. And so what Paul is saying is all these gods that you have, right? And I think today's world is, you know, just Google it, and there's so many options out there right. for gods. Truth options or things that are ultimate, right? Yeah. 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 And, and Paul is saying, but the, tr- but the real truth is there's just one. There's just one God, and, and he's, he's the God that we're talking about today, right? He's right. Yahweh. Yep. And that does, to your point earlier about, you know, the chaos and the unsettledness of living in a world we live in today, and how this gives us roots, it gives us stability, because we know who we are in this sense. We know that we're created by, by one God. Okay, so that's one part of this, right? So, so one, the existence of one God helps us to make sense of the whole human race, humanity. Right. Yeah. But it, it also then helps us to make sense of morality in general. If there's only one God, then there's only one Lord who has authority to establish a universal moral code. Now, this might be offensive to some people, but it's important, I think, especially for Christians to understand this mm-hmm. point. Yeah, because all right, you, you look around today and everybody's got a different moral code, and, and not even just different groups and movements, but individually, people are claiming the right now to say, well, I, I can determine what's true, and what's true for me isn't what's true for you, mm-hmm. and so forth. But, but you look around the world and you see that there are some commonalities, and you have to explain those. For example, every culture in history that around the world that, I, that I've ever heard of has some kind of taboo against um, murder. Hmm. There's some kind of taboo against um, marital unfaithfulness or, some, or sexual boundaries, some kind of sexual boundaries. Every single culture, where did that come from? Hmm. And so if there's one 
Creator, who is the one Lord, who's He's ultimately the one who is the source of all morality, this core of morality that people recognize, and um, and so it helps me to know, like, I'm not cast adrift in the world trying to figure out for myself what's right and wrong. It comes from an original source. Yeah, Psalm ninety six thirteen says, "He is coming to judge the earth; he will judge the world with justice." and the nations with his truth. It doesn't say, and the nation, it doesn't say right. just his people, Israel. It says, no, he's going to judge the nations He's because there's only one God, and he is God over everyone. So that does impact our morality. And I think it's important to, this is one of the reasons that we as followers of Jesus you know, feel this urge to share this with everybody. It's It's part of our loving response to humanity to say, no, wait, I know you believe there are all these other ways and ideologies and, and religions, but if, if, it, if the Bible's true, if there really is one God, then, then Christ's love, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians, Christ's love compels me mm-hmm. to, to share this and to call out to people, be reconciled to God, right. the one God. Right. Right? Yep. Okay, so the existence of one God helps us make sense of humanity, humankind, helps us make sense of morality. And just one more thing for today, at least, the existence of one God also also then, as a sort of a corollary, helps us to make sense of eternity. Because if there's only one God, then there's only one Savior, and there's only one way to salvation. Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. Right, and it's sort of a corollary. If there's one judge who establishes a moral framework for everybody, then then it makes sense that 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 same being then has established a way to be right with him when we've been wrong with him because we've all failed that moral that moral uh, framework that God set up. We need a way to be right with him, and so. Uh, the thing is, it's really popular in the, around the world today to say, well, everybody's got their own their own way to get to, um, you know, some kind of eternal fulfillment or enlightenment or or whatever that they envision that uh, ultimate blessed state to be um, in this life or in some future life. But um, you know, biblically, then the the one God gets to decide what that is. You know, we don't just get to decide what that is for him and mm-hmm. impose that upon him. But so the God who made everything also, if he made humanity, he made the moral code, then he also makes uh, the rules or the provision for us to be right with him and how to get right with him. And he's provided that uh, through, through his son Jesus, who became one of us. Isaiah 43, God says, I alone am God. There is no other God. There never has been, and there never will be. I, yes, I am the Lord, and there is no other Savior. And so only the God of the Bible can save. And again, we know that he saves through Jesus Christ. The Bible teaches very clearly that Jesus, who is God, we'll talk more about that next week, that Jesus, who is God, came to the earth. He lived a perfect sinless life. He went to the cross. He died on the cross for our sins. He rose from the dead three days later to prove his authority over sin and death and the grave. And the Bible teaches in so many places, the Bible teaches that only those who put their faith in this one God can be saved. So if you're listening today and if you've never put your faith in Jesus, I want to encourage you, find a Christian, find a mentor, find a good, solid biblical church, put your faith in Jesus Christ, start to learn the God of the Bible, 
The Bible undeniably teaches the oneness of God. That's the starting point for the doctrine of the Trinity, and I hope that you would really embrace that, what the Bible says. You know, we come to God on his terms, not on our terms. This is who God is. This is how he's been revealed in God's Word and the Bible. And we just invite you, if you don't know him, we invite you to know him, know the God of the Bible. Now, if you want to talk about this some more, if you want to see the small group video, the small group resources, the mentoring resources for your family, your small group, or a mentoring relationship, you can find this. This is topic number two at PursueGod.org forward slash Trinity. Ross, thanks for joining us today. And for everyone else, I hope you'll join us next week because next week, Ross, is the real zinger. We're going to talk about the second part of this equation, right, that God exists in three persons. We'll see everybody next time.